welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week on the show, we're talking about Anne Lister. Now, of course, Anne is super hot right now due to Sally Wainwright's Gentleman Jack, which is now currently airing on BBC and HBO. And um, in case you haven't seen it or heard anything about her, should I just uh, hit you guys in the face with some Anne Lister facts real quick before no, we get started? No, spoiler warning. If you are watching Gentleman Jack, you might not want to listen to this episode because we will spoil her life. All right. Well, here we go. Spoiler alert. Anne was born in 1791 to Jeremy and Rebecca Lister. The couple had four sons and two daughters, but only Anne and her sister Marion survived past the age of 20. Um, remarkably, Anne was the one to actually inherit Shibden Hall over her father. So her father was a second son and he was in the military. So he wasn't the one that was uh, inheriting Shibden Hall. So that, it's kind of amazing. Um, she knew that he didn't really have this like head for business. And she definitely exploited that when she was kind of getting her uncle to sign it over to her. So mm -hmm. I find that actually uh, really amazing that she like angled for the gig. In Anne Choma, possibly Choma, not sure, guys. In Anne Choma's book, she suggests that Anne's family was actually quite happy to uh, let her have Shibden Hall due to the fact that she was super driven, super bright, and um, very uninterested in marrying. So that meant that they would actually keep it in the family. Yeah, so, so it's almost like she can have it for a while. It's not yep. going anywhere. It will come back to us. Like when they make um, CEOs of a company, a woman or a person of color right before it goes out of business, right? Because they, right, get, right. The, they get the bonus points, but get, they get don't some have bonus to do points there. Looks great. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true. I've heard that in a thing. Um, Lister is best known as a diarist. She began writing her journal in 1806, and she kept that going until her death in 1840. She meticulously kept record of everything from travel to business matters to private sexy time affairs. And this is all in a combination of plain hand and code. In 1984, The Guardian published this article called The Two Million Word Enigma. At the time, they didn't know that they were dealing with more of a four million word enigma, um, where they challenged researchers to go up to Halifax and translate these diaries um, for Anne's upcoming bicentenary, which was going to hit in 1991. Helena Whitbread, however, uh, she was already up there doing just that. And actually, Helena has been working on these journals since 1983, which is crazy. She's still working on them. That is a long time. And it's a long time um, since I was born, really. And she published I Know My Own Heart in 1991, just in time for that bicentenary. And Virago Press actually just reprinted that book. And that was the first Ann Lister book that I purchased. And it's probably like the Ann Lister Bible, I would say. I mm -hmm. mean, it's pretty well regarded. We've actually had Ann Lister on the books in our binder full of women for a while now. Um, I've been actually interested in her since season one because of a possible or several possible Bronte connections, actually. Just working it in there. Just working it in there. Got to get those guys in there. Remember them? Remember the Brontes? 
So now the most well-known connection is with my favorite Emily from, I think, was it 1837 to 1838, possibly 1839? Emily was a teacher at Law Hill in Halifax. Now, Law Hill is just down the road from Shibden Hall. I have read in several places that it is half a mile within a mile and two miles away from Shibden Hall. So one of those is right. It's unclear as to whether or not Emily ever visited Shibden in an official capacity. Um, I have read one account that said that we don't have any definitive proof whether or not she ever went. And another one that says that her students definitely visited during her tenure. And therefore, we can assume that she accompanied them to Shibden. Regardless, I'm going to say this. Do the proximity and Anne's reputation around Halifax um, and the fact that Emily's boss was actually friends or acquaintances with Anne Lister. I'm going to say that I think Emily Bronte knew about Anne Lister. I think that's a fair, fair judgment. Yeah, I think that she probably knew about her. And it's possible. It's very possible that Shibden was used as inspiration for Thrush Cross Grange struggle with that one from Wuthering Heights. So that's your connection number one. A second Bronte connection. More? Is it is, more substantial? I feel like that one's probably the most substantial one. That one was the most substantial. She lived within half a mile, one mile, or two miles. Unclear. Okay. <laughs> but definitely <laughs> walk, definitely walking distance for a Bronte. It sounds like you have a tinfoil hat on. And you were like, listen, listen to me. It's there. It's there. It's a possible connection. Okay. Second one is with Charlotte. Now, there is a lot of speculation as to whether or not Charlotte visited Shibden Hall. And um, I think what we have to keep in mind is that the Bronte Parsonage, only 10 miles from Shibden Hall. Or 11. <laughs> Another disputed... <laughs> Another disputed Google we Maps do situation. It like in, what is it that Lark rides to Candleford or whatever, where they like they walk the postal line? Yes, we that should just be walk like the... a bonnet thing. We should just walk from the Bronte Parsonage to Shifton Hall and like right. figure out. I don't know how you measure a mile, like with a bit of string or something. We could do Coming that. Coming up, that's this a season. Fall. That's yeah. a whole season. Is that <laughs> season five bonnets at dawn? Um. So actually, something that we're going to talk about a little bit next week is that Charlotte loved visiting uh, big old houses and used them as inspiration in her novels. So surely, if you've read it, I'm looking at you, Hannah. I know you haven't, but it has a lot of Ann Lister vibes, some strong Ann Lister vibes. I mean, it also has some very strong, like, you know, Emily Bronte vibes, but come on, it's a possible, it's a possible thing. A third and final Bronte connection, because I know your patience is, is growing thin, <laughs> um, is that they actually shared a mutual acquaintance, which is something that we are going to be investigating further in November. So I'm really sorry to be such a tease about that. But is the uh, mutual connection, the ghost of Branwell Bronze. Are you teasing our Britain's I'm most haunted uh, spin-off? I'm not saying anything until November, okay? okay. All right. So, yeah. Okay. So we should just uh, jump on into our interview about Ann Lister. How about that? We're going to talk more about her life and Shibden Hall and all kinds of sexy time things. 
So our guest today is Angela Clare. Angela is a collections manager for Calderdale Museum, which looks after Shibden Hall. She's the author of Anne Lister of Shibden Hall and the forthcoming fictionalised account of Anne's life called The Moss House. Uh, she also made an appearance on the show. So that's yeah. pretty cool. It's very exciting. Yeah, so originally I studied archaeology at university, mainly because I didn't know what to do, uh, but I wanted to be an actor. So I ended up combining the two and having a job as what's called an interpreter at uh, the Royal Armouries, which is in Leeds in Yorkshire. So I worked there for several years and I got to do first person performances. So I'd research a character and perform as them in the relevant kit and tell those stories, which was just fascinating. And then I did uh, a master's by research looking at women in combat roles because I was finding that was where women were so overlooked. And it was the huge assumptions that women never wore armor, women never fought with swords. And I was like, no, they did. <laughs> Not in great numbers, but everywhere you look, every battle, every conflict, every occasion, there's always at least one woman that we know about and then obviously there'd be other women that weren't recorded especially at the lower class as well there'd be loads of women that did equivalent work and jobs to men um, so I just found it fascinating really um, after eight years though I kind of got itchy feet and felt like a new challenge and I saw a job advertised doing a first world war commemorative exhibition in 2014 um, which I got quite excited about because some of my work had looked at a lot of First World War archives. And so I'd done a lot of research on that period. Um, so I got that job and that was at Bankfield Museum in Halifax. And whilst I was there, the job as collections manager came up. So Bankfield is part of Calderdale Museum Service. So Calderdale, it's a small region in West Yorkshire and they look after five museums. And the job as collections manager, which is basically the person who looks after all the stuff. <laughs> and that came up and I managed to get it. And so suddenly I was responsible for all the collections. So we have about 70,000 objects from art, uh, textiles, um, social history, military history, you name it, we've got some of it. And across these um, five museums across four sites. So and one of them is Shibden Hall. And um, despite having studied women's history and been a strong feminist and women's historian for several years, I got the job and I went to visit and I had never heard of Anne Lister. So I thought straight away, well, this isn't right. <laughs> if I've not heard of her, nobody else is going to. And again, I said, you know, it's a small service. We don't have marketing budget. We don't have sort of a huge team of people. There's only a handful of us. But we started to look at what we could do. So we made a documentary film. We started to do more press and PR and just kind of spreading the word. I went out and gave more talks. Mm -hmm. uh, we gave calls about Anne. We added more interpretation about her. So the ball started rolling quite a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And then obviously more recently, uh, Sally Wainwright um, came to film her Bronte biopic to walk invisible. I don't know if you mm -hmm. saw that. Oh, yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. So she came and she filmed quite a few scenes at Shibden. So Shibden Hall, it's sort of 500 years old. It's um, wonderfully kept as it was. It was one of those where the last resident couldn't afford to keep it. And the entire hall and all its contents was kept as a museum. Mm -hmm. So not like a house where they've had to sell everything off. Everything was still there. So it's like a time capsule oh, uh, yes. showing these generations of people that have lived there, including Anne Lister. Um, so they filmed there for To Walk Invisible. And Sally mentioned that she'd 
always been a fan of Anne Lister. And then the next thing she knows, she says she's been greenlit to do a TV series about Anne Lister. So we were overjoyed, really. And my job is to tell the stories and share them. So what more could I ask for, really? I mean, obviously, I had already written a TV series idea myself. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I thought Sally's got a few more contacts than I have. So, um, yeah, so I let her do it. (laughs) And, um, And then obviously the other thing I'd been doing was I'd written a fictional version of Anne's relationship with Anne Walker um, Mm -hmm. because the diaries are so kind of hard to get into and what's Mm -hmm. been published is very a very small amount really so we know kind of you know we've got a chronology and we know the big events in her life but we've only really so far had pockets of what's happened um, mm-hmm. through Helena Whitbread's books and Jill Liddington's. So I kind of just let my imagination run wild, really, and I just I wrote um, it quite a while ago. <laughs> and then, obviously, then the TV series was coming out, and I thought, oh, I should probably do something with what I've written before somebody right. else does. Right. Um, so I, I got out the first three chapters, and I really sort of tweaked them and um, not perfected them because there was still a lot more to do, but got them to the point where I was happy to share them because, mm-hmm. you know, as a writer, it's really hard, that first letting go. Oh, yes. <laughs> first person to read it. So I gave it to my mom, and she was like, this is brilliant. You should write the rest. And then um, and I got a publisher who's local, and obviously they were familiar with Shibden and Anne, so they were really mm-hmm. keen to publish this book. And it comes out on the 14th of July. Um, and then through work, um, whilst all this was happening in the background, I've published a short book, which is an introductory guide. Because um, mm-hmm. it's not really just like a beginner's guide to Anne. You right. kind of, a lot of the books, they give like a very, an overview at the start, but then they delve straight into the diaries at certain points. Mm-hmm. Whereas I couldn't really find anything that just told you, like basically the gossip. Oh, <laughs> all well, the, tell- all the key bits of information that you actually want to know. Right. Tell us a few key and uh bits of information actually for our listeners because okay, i will give everyone like a small yeah. overview but i mean you know you know the facts yeah yeah so we're basically um in a, in a nutshell she's hard to condense into a short interview but uh born in 1791 and she lived till 1840 so she was 49 when she died um she didn't really get on with her parents uh she was well educated she got to go to school and she had tutors um that carried on you know she was very keen scholar she would have been very clever as well Uh, quite early on she started to write a diary and this became an addiction for her she wrote every single day and meticulous details of the timings for everything how long it took to do everything how long it took to walk anywhere what she ate what she wore um her health and well-being so what she's left us with after all those about 30 years of diary writing is 26 volumes and we're estimating because they've still not been counted about five million words so her legacy are these diaries but in her lifetime she never actually published anything Mm -hmm. um she didn't sort of campaign for anything really so she's not kind of notable necessarily for what she accomplished when she was alive that sounds awful doesn't it um mm-hmm. but what she left us with is the hall which has been preserved and has got lots of the original furniture and things that would have been hers and these diaries which tell us so much about her so that's kind of what we're left with um but what she i mean she was very educated she played musical instruments she read widely she had a huge library um She managed the estate. She moved in in 1815 with her aunt and uncle, who were brother and sister that lived there, to get away from her parents. 
And it seems that she probably started to learn how to manage the estate quite early on. And in 1826, when her uncle died, he split the property between his sister, also called Anne, um, his niece, Anne Lister, our Anne Lister, and her father, Jeremy, his brother. Um, But Anne, even from 1826, seemed to be the one running the estate and managing it all. So she was a businesswoman and a landowner as well, which does make mm-hmm. her quite remarkable because although several women have done that and we're quite capable of it, she's one that is well recorded. Um, mm-hmm. She was in the Halifax Literary and Philosophical Society. Um, she, yeah, she had new endeavours. She sunk coal mines. She built a new hotel in the town centre. Um, she was involved in the new roads that were put in. So she was quite um, on it and involved in society. Um, But she was gay and she refused to marry. She was never going to. She was not interested in men at all. Um, And that's what comes out in the diaries. It probably wasn't known at the time, but when the diaries were looked at and the coded sections cracked, so she'd written in code um, everything about her personal relationships and also about money and her health. It was all coded so that only she could read it. Uh, But what they revealed was that she was having sex with women. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's great for lesbian history because a lot of women we think they might have been gay um, and Mm -hmm. they probably were but we don't know for sure. But with Anne it's unquestionable because she writes explicitly about having sex with women and what she got up to. Um, So for historians she's left this huge legacy of archives also the hall and um, for lesbian history she's somebody that we can hold up and say you know she, and she stuck to it as well she didn't marry she didn't conform um, other women that she was with and loved and loved her did marry men um, so obviously the social pressure was huge but she resisted that and she stuck to her guns and she also wore black which again was not done 200 years ago mm-hmm. so she was quite confident and brave to do her own thing and carry on with her life but her life is quite tragic really it didn't work out well because <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is the thing that she did accomplish which is quite remarkable is her mountaineering uh, she went to the oh, Pyrenees yeah. twice sort of 10 years apart I think and she uh, was the first woman to climb one mountain and the first person to climb another so she was an avid walker and obviously very physically fit and capable mm-hmm. um, and she travelled widely so she tra- spent a lot of time in France and through Europe but she obviously um, had itchy feet for want of a better phrase um, because mm-hmm. by 1838 even though she was quite happily married with Anne Walker and the two of them were living in Shibden Hall she obviously still wanted to push herself and go further and see beyond what other women of her class and status had seen. So the two of them set off to Russia and it was a sort of two-year expedition and they went to Russia and they got as far as Georgia but that is where Anne died and we don't exactly know how she died. It must have been quite quick because she was otherwise very healthy Mm -hmm. Um, and she died in Georgia in 1840 and her body was brought back and buried in Halifax Parish Church about eight months later And she'd left everything to Anne Walker, um, who lived at Shibden Hall. But within a few years, Anne Walker's brother-in-law had her removed Mm -hmm. um, and she never went back there. So the whole story is really quite tragic. And in 1836, that's when she fully inherited her aunt, who she was very close to, died, and her father. And her sister, Marion, who'd also lived with them, she left. Mm -hmm. So from 1836, all you had was... um, Anne and Anne, the two women who were married and living together at the hall. But from the diaries, it suggests that they weren't getting on brilliantly. 
and then they set off on this long expedition and Anne didn't make it back. So there's a lot of um, a lot of things we'd like to find out more about, like her final mm-hmm. travels and what other people thought about her. Um, and the diaries end quite a bit before she died. So mm-hmm. there seems to be a missing journal because it finishes because she'd run out of space. And then okay. there's quite a few months missing. So there's lots of questions and there's so much more to still be discovered. But that's Anne Lister in a nutshell. That's in what a she's nutshell. interesting. <laughs> I love that there's a missing journal. Yeah, oh, so it'll goodness. be somewhere. <laughs> That's somewhere. There's some fan fiction for that missing journal too. I'm oh, sure. definitely, definitely. And then this is why I went with fiction because, other than spend, you know, having five years off work to actually sit and transcribe the diaries and make mm-hmm. sense of them, and then also the diaries only give us Anne's point of view. And if you've ever right. written a diary, we write you're quite blunt, aren't you? So she comes across mm-hmm. as quite, ugh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's because it's, it's your inner thoughts, isn't it? And you're not expecting anybody else to read them. Um, mm. So what would be really nice to research is actually what other people within her circle wrote about her and mm. how they perceived her. That's why we're looking at sort of other diarists and people in this region of the period to see if she mm. comes up in any of their letters or records um, to give us a more rounded view, really, because all we have is what she's written about herself. Right. Um, and I don't think it was ever intended to be read. <laughs> right. And definitely no, exactly. not the coded sections. The coded sections <laughs> are definitely off limits. But, uh, but yeah, I hope she doesn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite Anne Lister anecdote? Do you have something that like helps you feel closer to Anne? I think just being in the hall, again, mm-hmm. being in there regular and also when there aren't visitors in there, it's quite nice to just be in those spaces and know that she was there. And within mm-hmm. the hall, obviously, you know, it's a very public persona. So the main house body, you know, she added a big staircase and raised the ceiling and, you know, she added this grandeur to it. But actually, mm-hmm. when you go upstairs, you go along a little corridor and at the end of that is her bedroom and her little dressing room or office. And when you go into that, that's when you kind of feel like this is where she would retreat to, especially when she was living there with her dad and her aunt and her sister. You know, you can imagine her retreating to go and write her diary. And that's where she would have done it. And I think that's when you feel most close to her. But collections wise, obviously, we've got furniture and things that would have been there when she was there and had the archives and diaries. But mm-hmm. nobody ever kept things like clothes or personal right. effects. They were just lost. And because of, cause she didn't have any children, obviously, and because of the way that Anne Walker was taken from the hall, most of the personal things that would have been theirs would have just been lost and gotten rid of. So it's more the building itself. And um, mm-hmm. there's carvings on the stairs that she designed and wanted. And there's her initials on the staircase. So it's that kind of connection. And outside, there's this big stone lister lion. Um, Mm. So it's the family kind of emblem holding the shield. And he greets you as you come to Shivden Hall. But she commissioned that. Again, she chose that. And she wanted the outside to meet people. So that's when you can, it's like you're meeting her, isn't it? And the gatehouse, Mm -hmm. she built that. Um, So again, it's the things that she specifically chose and made that, you know, it's like going to visit her, I guess. Could you give us like a little history of the house? I know it has a big history. Yeah, yeah. After, you know, Anne Walker, like what what happened? Like what how did it become sort of part of the museum 
Yeah, system. so as well as Anne's story, Shibden's whole story is really quite epic. Like, you could make a whole TV series just about Shibden. In fact, the mm-hmm. TV series originally was going to be called Shibden. And we oh, were really? really excited about that because that's a really good advert. But when they went with Gentleman yeah. Jack, obviously it sounds a bit edgier and it is more about Anne Lister. So mm-hmm. near the hall, it was first recorded something being there in 1420. So next year, we're looking at being the 600-year anniversary of the hall itself. Um, you can see structurally how it's changed and obviously different residents have added to it. But but to be honest, Anne did the most changes. She added two mm-hmm. new wings and a tower. And her legacy is kind of what you see after Anne. I don't think they had quite as much, residents didn't perhaps have as much money as she did because Anne had her money, but she also mm-hmm. had Anne Walker's money. So, mm-hmm. and that's why she was able to do quite a lot. So she landscaped all around the hall. So 70 acres of it, she turned into parkland. Oh my God. Um, she created a waterfall, uh, ponds, uh, terraced gardens for apple trees. She built the driveway to the gatehouse and she built a lake, as you do. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, when you obviously. visit Shibden, the, the park, again, Anne is everywhere. Everywhere you look, you mm-hmm. can tell, if you know, you know that Anne was there and what she created. Um, mm-hmm. So the hall after Anne, so she left it to Anne Walker. Uh, for the rest of Anne Walker's life. And Anne Walker died in 1854. So whilst Anne Walker wasn't there, it was uh, tenanted out, so people rented it. And when Anne Anne Walker died in 1854, it reverted back to some very distant Lister relatives, who was a Dr. John Lister. And he moved in with his wife, Louisa, and their three children, two of which, John and Anne, were the next residents. So his son, John, everyone's called the same thing. It's really frustrating. So his son, John, inherited the hall, and he was the last John Lister to own the hall. And he lived there with his sister, Anne. And basically, John Lister, the last one, was... um, Built lots of things. He bought, uh, built a industrial school for young men to be educated. He uh, conserved. Like, he had buildings rebuilt in the park to preserve them. Basically, he spent all his money, mm-hmm. and so by the end of his days, a friend of his bought it from him and said, I'll buy it, but you can live here until you die. And that's what happened. And when he died, it was given to the Halifax Corporation, which is now the county council. Um, So that's why it was preserved. So his sister died a few years earlier, and then John died in 1933. And they opened it as a museum, I think within a year. So they just kind of cleaned and tidied it a bit, sorted it, and then they opened it up to the public. And it's been a park and museum ever since, um, which is why it's such a lovely kind of maintained pocket of history just on the Mm -hmm. outskirts of Halifax. So the hall itself is history is quite interesting as well. And you can see all through the different periods, you've got sort of the early sort of medieval through to Tudor, through to sort of more later Victorian ideals of what a home should look like. Mm -hmm. And obviously they had like electric put in and water. And so you can see all of that within the foundations of the building and how it's changed and how some bits have remained exactly the same over the years to keep with that tradition. Um, so yeah, well worth a visit. The hall itself, I, I, I wish I knew more about sort of the architectural things, but oh, no. you know, there's a lot to see there. You can really see, you know, it's a hall through time really. It's a little time capsule. <laughs> is there something in there that's like your favorite item or is, do you have like a favorite spot? Um, I think the staircase, it's almost like mm-hmm. that Titanic moment. <laughs> <laughs> With Leonardo DiCaprio waiting at the top of the stairs with his hand up. But it's more, um, it's not as grand as that, don't worry. But it's mm-hmm. just, the staircase is what Anne put in. So she knocked out a room and she picked it. And on the staircase, 
She's got her initials, and they've got the Lister motto, which is just and true of purpose, which is lovely. And oh. then on the staircase, they've got a sculpture. There's an engraving carved woman on one side and a car, the carved Lister, Lister lion again on the other side. And, again, you shouldn't, obviously, because I'm supposed to preserve these things, but I can't help running my hands over these carved <laughs> sculptures. And just standing there and looking at the, the huge fireplace that she chose and the windows that had been there since the house was first built... And again, it gives you that sense of place. And I think she would have had so many memories there, you know, for, for, to live there for so long. First of all, with her aunt and uncle, who probably, you know, I think the relationship with them seems very lovely. And her aunt traveled with her to France. So lots of happy times. But then obviously by the end of it, when everybody was uh, dying on them and you ended up with just the two women and they seemed quite fractious. So it's just that whole journey of her life. So it's quite nice to just stand on the few steps looking into the house body and, you know, you know, with your hand on the list of lion and feeling like yeah. what, imagining what she would have felt like being there. I can see why it's a great filming location, too. And they're actually, like, filming in the hall. There wasn't, like, like the Bronte yeah. Parsonage where they did the, you know, replica of the Parsonage no, no, as well. No, no, it was great for us because I think when they first came around, the producers were like, oh, we're going to have to rebuild this elsewhere because it's too small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Sally was really keen, in fact, adamant, I'd say, that they film on site. So at one point they were saying they were going to do all the exteriors there and build mm-hmm. all the interiors at a studio. But in mm-hmm. the end, they filmed pretty much everything at Shibden except for Anne's bedroom um, because it's along a passageway and up some stairs through quite a narrow entranceway so there's no way you could have got the filming kit in there Mm -hmm. Um, and also her bedroom because it was lived in by later generations it wasn't it didn't look how it would have looked when she had it. So we didn't have it set okay. how she would have had it. Um, so the only thing they built in the studio was, um, they did some in, interiors of carriages and things. Um, they built Anne's bedroom. And then Anne Walker's properties no longer exist. So they built the, the Cronest property um, in the studio as well for Anne Walker's bedrooms and rooms. Um, so yeah, so all of it is Shivden Hall. So when you're watching it on telly, all of that exists. And you can come and visit it. So it's great for us. It's like one big advert. <laughs> it's like eight hour long adverts for Shivden Hall because it's all there. And I think for the actors, I know Saran was just, you know, so pleased to be where she was because I think, you know, it's such a job to get yourself into their shoes. But actually she's walking around her house. Um so, you know, you can't really get much better than that. And I think all the actors appreciated that. And Sally was really pleased because obviously, you know, she's keen as we are to preserve the house for the future. And I think the way to do that is to show it. Um, and hopefully we'll have some other filming come to us as well. Hopefully some yeah. more series. And then other things as well, because obviously the house is quite... Um, obviously it's a period house, but it covers, as I say, 600 years worth of history. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of potential for us. And again, to preserve the house... Um, any filming money is always good. Yeah, <laughs> it absolutely. It all helps to repair. So after that, we had, we've been able to replace the electrics and improve the lighting. Uh, we've oh. repaired things that needed doing, some new plastering and things. So the money, it, you know, it's a great investment in preserving Shibden Hall. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. been fantastic, really, for us. Now, how did you end up also in Gentleman Jack? Because I'm assuming also you were sort of a consultant as well, or it sound, sounds like they probably talked to everyone on the team. Yeah, yeah, they talked to us quite a bit at first when they were having the ideas, but Sally, again, Sally had already done a lot of research, so she knew what she was doing. She knew mm-hmm. Anne very well, way, way more than I did, to be honest, because um, she'd spent a long time ago, she'd spent a lot of time with Helena, and, you know, they'd 
talked about ideas and Anne and you know Sally was very clued up um mm. so she didn't really need my help <laughs> um so she was kind of ready to go um but uh no so I ended up in it um so as well as obviously because I was an actor so that's my background yeah. and I've ended up as a historian and collections person working in museums but I've always kept in action I've, I try and do at least one theatre production every year and use up my holidays and things I've done mm. short films and bits of tv and stuff so I um I just sent my showreel to Sally and um, got an, uh, an audition. Same as everybody else, obviously there's no bias in it. And, um, mm. and that was through their casting agent. And I got a very small part. Um, and I play Mrs. Watson, who is Mariana's lady's maid. So Mariana was Anne's probably true love. Um, that was who she loved when she was younger. They met when I think they were 19, 20, quite young. And had a wonderful uh, relationship. But Mariana married a man. She decided that she needed that money. But she married a much older man. And I think we can infer that she thought he might die. And that she would then be left a widow with money and be able to be with Anne. But that never happened. He outlived all of them, in fact, I think. Um, So again, it's quite a tragic story. And I think although Anne had other relationships with other women, it was always married. She kept in touch with her, you know, all through her life. Um, But I think Anne felt she was very religious. And I think she felt that she was committing adultery because Mariana had married Charles. Um, So in the TV series, I got to... um, yeah, be Mariana's mate. So I didn't, it wasn't, it's not a huge part. I only got to knock on some doors and ride some carriages, but it was lovely mm-hmm. to be part of it. And um, the best thing was my first scene was riding on the top of a carriage into Shibden Hall Courtyard in oh. kit. And, you know, you couldn't make it up, really. Yeah, exactly. It <laughs> sounds surreal. Experience. We should probably recreate that and charge people to do it because it just <laughs> divide in on horses into the courtyard. And, ha- and also, Saran Jones as Anne Lister was sort of, you know, there in the doorway waiting. And it just, it all felt very surreal. Are you guys doing some special events uh, like around the Gentleman Jack, uh, like premiere or anything? Yeah, well, basically, well, the other week, um, every year on Anne Lister's birthday, the 3rd of April, we do sort of tours and talks and events. Last year, we had a bit of a conference and we had Sally speaking about Gentleman Jack and all that was happening, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so this year, I did some guided tours. And this year, we unveiled a blue plaque. Mm-hmm. And Anne Lister, I think, has been on the list for this area for a long time. But obviously, now there's a TV series coming out. She kind of got bumped to the top of the list (laughs) to get a blue plaque and we were really pleased to have that so that was unveiled on her birthday the 3rd of April I think she would have been 229 that day Mm -hmm. Um, and we had Helena Whitbread and Jill Liddington there and the mayor and so you know it was a lovely event to commemorate sort of Anne and like I say although unfortunately she never published in her lifetime her legacy of the diaries is enough to warrant her being marked in that way Mm. Um, and the legacy of the hall as well so yes we've got our first blue plaque um, but we're now going to research all the other people that live there and we'll probably be able to add a few more because most of the people that lived at Shibden were, you know, had some involvement in local life and left mm-hmm. us a legacy in some way. So, but no, it was wonderful to be marked. And there's also a blue plaque in Holy Trinity Church in York, which is where mm-hmm. Anne and Anne had their marriage ceremony as well. And that was unveiled oh. last summer. So she's oh. being permanently etched onto our landscape. 
so when you come over, come over to York as well and you can visit mm-hmm. Holy Trinity Church. It's a lovely one just down a little back alleyway. And that's where in the diary Anne records that they exchanged vows at home in private mm-hmm. and they went to the church to be blessed. Um, okay. Obviously, the, the vicar or priest didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> right. OK, gotcha. But, but in their minds, it was a wedding and she thought that they were as good as married. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a lovely piece of um, LGBT history that that is commemorated now with a blue plaque as well. Oh, that uh, yeah. is So great. again, that's another thing we can put credit. We call her the first modern lesbian because she lived yes. as a gay woman. She didn't marry. She lived with women and she had a marriage ceremony with um, Anne Walker. So, yeah, she did pretty much what you would do. Right, <laughs> so yeah. What, that's what's kind of interesting about her is you think she was so brave to do that because other women, you know, did just conform and marry. And, you know, mm-hmm. it must have been horrendous to have to put up with a man if you're not interested. Right. Um, but that was what was done. And like Mariana, although she loved Anne she just obviously was so worried about money and not having a situation Mm -hmm. um so she you know um married Charles Lawton to get the property and the independence that some money afforded her although Anne I think would have willingly had her move into Shibden with her but Mm -hmm. at this stage Anne only had a third of Shibden so Anne didn't have that much money either um so you can see why the lure of marriage um, succumbed a few of her girlfriends. Um, mm. But Anne Walker was even more well-off than Anne. Um, so she was very independent and she didn't have to marry either. And so the two women ended up together. So they were kind of lucky in a way that they did. They were of that class. And mm-hmm. that they lived in such a secluded area. When you visit Shibden, you notice how cut off it is. So nobody would have ever known what went on there. They were just two women that um, lived together. Um, mm-hmm. So the the the, um, the angst, as it were, against Anne and the the name Gentleman Jack, and that's more about her appearance. Um, Mm -hmm. And also the fact that she was involved in politics. She had um, Tory meetings at Shibden Hall. And although she couldn't vote, she had 50 men on her property who were entitled to the vote because she let them rent property from them. So Mm -hmm. she leaned on them to vote her way. She didn't win. Um, So again, that's why there was animosity towards her and also for her and Anne to live together. Um, Mm -hmm. The tight, you know, people would look on and be like, well, that's two women, you know, not sharing their money with a a worthy man who would spend it better than them. You know, it's much more about sort of gendered assumptions rather than their actual sexuality, which I don't think would have even been thought about. Um, It just wasn't, thought of at the time, wasn't it? It wasn't something that people would have considered. And we are back. So, great interview. Thanks for securing another excellent guest, Lauren. Thank you for coming on the show, Angela. You were awesome, and I expect we'll hear more from you later. There I go, teasing again. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Uh, What we can talk about that isn't a tease is we're going to discuss the Guardian long read interview with Sally Wainwright, which I think I shared like an audio version of it in the Facebook group this week. Yes. And it's all about um, writing and directing and Anne Lister and Gentleman Jack and like process. But I'll be honest, Mm -hmm. the thing that piqued my interest was just that it was called like what is it? What's it even called? Like from Archers to HBO or something? Yeah. I was just like, oh, the Archers. This is great. Because one, love that Guardian Long Read podcast. Two, oh, yeah. love The Arches. Listen to that every night, every night. 
And then the other thing that was funny is I recognised Sally Wainwright's name and I was like, oh, Sally Wainwright, that's the person who isn't Sally Hawkins. Uh, I'm shaking my head. You guys can't see. And then I was like, oh, that's the person who did To Walk Invisible. And then, there you go. And then I was like, oh, Gentleman Jack. There so we go. it took a little while. Like that's, that's how that uh, trickled. <laughs> it's a long walk but i mean that's that's the process most things have to take like (laughs) a flow diagram is this the arches yes straight Mm -hmm. like make that connection really quick if it's a no then yeah there's just more is this harry potter related no is it related jane austen question mark (laughs) yeah now we know how hannah's brain works finally (laughs) great season (laughs) into season three of the show trying to work it out for a long time Um, I've actually been a huge fan of Sally Wainwright for a while now, and I really loved um, that piece and podcast that you shared uh, because of process, actually. Mm-hmm. That's my thing. Um, but also, um, I just did a Happy Valley and Scott and Bailey rewatch like last summer during my maternity leave, which is really bleak uh, maternity watching, um, but great. Really great. Love it. And um, this is going to sound like super cliche but i'm just like how else do i say it okay so the thing that i love most about wainwright is the way that she writes strong female characters Uh. and i'm like i know i'm like (laughs) rolling my eyes as i say that i just that phrase gets bandied about like just you know so damn much um but it's it's true like she does really write these really um interesting characters they're like they're characters that you don't see anywhere else i mean katherine k wood from happy valley like just like gets my heart racing mm-hmm. they're just like super complex very interesting and marmite i feel like that's the key word like they're very marmite so yeah in the gentleman jack book introduction which wainwright has written she actually said this as Saran astutely observed when we started rehearsing Gentleman Jack, she's a bit Marmite, this one. One of the many contradictions about Anne Lister is that she appears so far ahead of her time in having such an admirably healthy attitude towards her homosexuality while being something of a dinosaur, even in her own time, in regarding those from deprived classes as insensate commodities. So, yeah, Anne is a wild snob. I think you get a little bit of this in episode one um, where I think she's because she's complaining about like working classes being able to vote. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, she's very progressive in some areas and a dinosaur in others. And I think that is a really, really tough thing to pull off with a character when you're writing a historical character. We come across this a lot, right? Like we're, we're we're constantly sort of mulling over and just agonizing over someone that we're studying from the past mm-hmm. um, that is not as progressive as we'd like them to be. Well, it's it's this expectation that someone's going to be progressive in all areas. And also we yes. have hindsight. So there will be things that we, I think, don't even realize we're dropping the ball on now. Mm-hmm. And in 50 years time, people are going to look back and be like, wow, I mean, pretty vocal about this, but totally ignored this other thing that's going on. Yeah. And you yeah so i think that stuff like that's always really interesting and like just context based but we yeah. with every single person there isn't a single person we've covered on the show that you're not like oh that's this like, is problematic this is your skeleton in the closet okay <laughs> yeah i think what wainwright's really done really well with the show is that she's actually put that front and center 
And I think maybe where Sally's coming from is uh, this quote that's actually from that long read. Uh, She says, one of the reasons I like writing for women is that women have to be heroic because they are second class citizens to a lot of men. Um, And I I think you can see like that's where she's starting from in -hmm. all of her writing. Um, I actually really do feel that. And I also was really surprised to learn from that article that she's such a shy, quiet person and that her friends kept saying, like, you have to speak up more. You have to, like, yeah, tell people what you want. You have to be more demanding with your career. Because I always sort of imagined her like these characters that she writes mm-hmm. who are definitely women who walk into the room and tell you exactly what they want. And, like, they're not hearing anything else about it, you know? I really liked the line where she says uh, of Anne Lister that she's a shag bandit rubber knickers. Yes. That's my favorite bit. That should have been the title, honestly. <laughs> that would be the episode, <laughs> uh, the episode title for this. Oh, that would be a good one. Yeah. yeah okay, great. Thank you. Um, but I also found uh, this one part like super relatable. So um, it goes, a couple of years ago, Anne Reed, one of the stars of Last Tango, told me, I just want to chain her to a chair and say, please, will you write some more? I think she's hit something gold here and I don't think she realises. And then Wainwright says, no, I do, replied Wainwright, smiling. When I told her what Reed had said, but you don't want to look, uh, she seemed self-conscious about how it might sound to be confident in her own abilities. Yes. Sally Uh, Wainwright has imposter syndrome. Yeah. And, you know, um... I think the more I care about something, the less I feel I'm able to speak up about it. Like, you know, I go to my day job and I'm like too mouthy, I think, possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's certainly how I feel like I come across. But I find it very hard to talk about the podcast or mm-hmm. other projects that I'm working on. You know, things that are like personal and that I care deeply about. I kind of clam up about those and find that quite hard so and I'll often just go along with what people want just because you can't I don't know it's just and it's not because I I don't think I can do it or that it's not good it's just I have to wonder too if it's something about mostly living and working in your inner world as well I was thinking about that while I was uh reading the article like if she's so used to making these decisions alone in a room and then suddenly she's in front of a group of people and, and it sounds like it. you have to justify it. But then also she is she does sound very considerate too. like mm-hmm. part of the article. Um, there's a line in the article that says that she listens. So it does sound like she listens and considers other viewpoints. And so that might seem like she's quiet or maybe that she's not being as decisive as one might think that she should be. But. It just thinks it just sounds like she's taking it in. I think it's I think it's very hard to talk about your own stuff and not feel like you're sucking up the oxygen in the room or you're talking mm-hmm. about yourself too much. Or mm-hmm. you know, I remember when I was a kid, this is I made like a loaf of bread in school and I told my grandma and I said, That that was very clever, wasn't it? And she said, No, you should wait and you shouldn't say that you were very clever. You should wait until yeah. someone tells you that you were very clever. And that yeah. like stuck with me. And actually, now that I'm, you know, I turn 30 next year, I'm fucking tired of waiting for someone <laughs> to tell me I'm clever. Because they're never well, going is, to. No one's that ever... is exactly um, what happens in the article. 
now like at 56 she's just like you know what actually i like absolutely deserve to be here and i should be directing and writing like all of my own things and there should be no questions about it and other people who are more vocal mostly men well, mm-hmm. they they will take the opportunity and they will put themselves out there and they will speak yeah. up and they will get it. And then you'll just stay there quiet, not getting what you want because you haven't said anything because you yeah. haven't trusted in yourself enough to to just to say it or to put it out there or to be the person who says, yeah, I made a loaf of bread. It's the mm-hmm. fucking tits. Look at that. Grand. Yeah. <laughs> I love my grandma. Sorry. <laughs> I just really want to clarify. <laughs> she gave me a lot of good lessons in life. <laughs> never wear a crop top but this this bread one but this, this bread is one, one yeah this bad <laughs> fair enough fair enough <laughs> um so other than that interview i also watched uh, an interview with uh sally wainwright and saran jones and actually what was really interesting about it which is like still about process but specifically i think says a lot about period dramas right so something they talked about was um the choice of giving Anne lister a top hat mm-hmm so Anne Lister didn't wear a top hat, right? Mm-hmm. But Anne Lister did wear weird clothes. Yeah. So other people at the time would have been like, oh, look at Anne Lister's funny clothes. But it was nuanced. So modern audiences wouldn't look at the clothes she was wearing and be able to tell necessarily the difference between that and just weird historical clothing. And so mm-hmm. to get the emotion involved in how someone dresses, you have to take historical fact and put it in a box because actually the emotion is more important than the fact. Yes. So it's how you feel looking at Anne Lister walking down the street. It's more important than what Anne Lister wore because you're right. taking something and you're translating it. It's like that whole, you know, I say it all the time when, when you translate a joke from one language to another, you're not translating the words, you're translating the the feeling of the joke, right? Because right. jokes mm-hmm. don't translate. And so actually I think this is a really like, Maybe all period dramas do this, but I just, it really like opened the lid on a box for me. Like I, I really yeah. got it. And like Anne Lister didn't walk with a cane, but like what in one, one piece of costuming in one prop, you get so much of that masculine energy and just, it mm-hmm. says so much and just the way she moves with it and the way it punctuates things like genius. And then the watch. So um, Saran Jones checking the watch all of the time comes mm-hmm. from how many diary entries in Anne Lister's journals have not like oh it was about three it was 313 it was 247 yeah. so they know that Anne Lister was constantly checking constantly checking mm-hmm. and how would she do that she'd do that by having a watch which then goes into the performance and it was just oh it's just fascinating like I just really loved that I love that point because I think that's something that we need to have actually more conversations about, like as far as how to critique period drama, because I do think that a lot of times we get hung up on the details mm-hmm. like, oh, this is not specifically historically accurate. And it's like, OK, it's not specifically historically accurate, but maybe that's because that's not visually as appealing or or it's not helping the performance or that's not like emoting the thing that you need it to emote or it's not providing a sort of sh- a shorthand that you mm-hmm. need to understand the period and understand the feeling of what they're trying to convey and also re- remembering like it's a drama mm-hmm. it's not a documentary yeah exactly but it reminded me of a conversation we had in the facebook group a while back about emma watson not wearing a corset in mm-hmm. uh, little women mm-hmm. and how that is like a divisive topic and should she be wearing a corset and should she not 
And I, this weekend, was actually watching clips from the 1994 Little Women crying, Mm -hmm. you know. Of course. All of them. Amy falls in the the lake, cried. Meg sprains her ankle, cried. Every, (laughs) like, every single one. I was uh, very emotional. Um, But, uh, what's her name? She's not Jodie Foster. The stepmom. Oh, um... Mm. I can see Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon. So Susan Sarandon plays Marmy, and in that version, they a character trait that they introduce that isn't in Little Women is about how she's. They take uh, Louisa May Alcott being anti corsets. They give that to Marmy because it's something mm. that's coming from the author. So Marmy makes comments about the fact that you know um, the reason her girls are healthy and sprightly and can run around because they don't wear corsets and then she does like a it's like a boob moment right and meg's just like (laughs) mum you've just told this man i'm not wearing a corset and like again it's interesting it's not it's not just the emma watson thing like that's the thing because that's coming from the author and the author's beliefs and the author wrote the book and so the adaptations are not just going from what's on the page but the context Right, And it's something that she came back to so many times. So it's not a jump to think that maybe these characters wouldn't have been wearing them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the decisions like that. I just, I would like to see more interviews and like more thought Mm -hmm. going in. Um, I saw a clip of the guy who designed the costume saying that to come up with the top half, almost male looking clothing on Anne Lister and then the skirt is the woman's clothing. He he looked at um, famous lesbians through history. So not just at that time, but all the way through history and how mm-hmm. they were interpreting gendered dressing. It was just saying, like, I understand the context in this time, but fashion is a moment in history. So let's look at all of history to, in- to ed- like, inform this. And mm-hmm. I just, yeah. And it really That's makes the cool. show. Like, it's really, you know. It, it really does. I think everything is very considered mm-hmm. in this show. Um, what I'm actually surprised about too is like the pacing, like it feels very measured. We're not, we're not rushed at all. Um, she lingers a lot. And I think that is her as a director punctuating moments, trying to get you to sit with the character in certain Mm -hmm. moments. Um, but it does feel very measured and very considered and very thoughtful. And, um, I would like some more. Some more stuff like this, please. I wish she had a, Br- a Bronte miniseries. Like, this makes me actually think back to, to Walk Invisible and go, damn it, I wish she had, like, six episodes. Yeah, more time. Now, we could go on and on about Sally and Anne, but uh, we're out of time for the day. Sadly, we've got to go. But don't worry, because this is not our last episode on Anne Lister, because we are going to Shibden Hall in November. It's out there. Yeah, we're going to Shibden Hall, baby. We are doing another literary home road trip, which I am very excited about. Can't wait. Can't wait to go abroad. Yeah, I know. It's going to be a new season, new spots, new friends. I'm very excited. Sam's still Um, behind the wheel. Just driving that car. Poor Sam. (laughs) Poor Sam driving us all over England. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, if you guys want to follow us on our road trip, you can on the internets. Um, And how do they do that, Hannah? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com and you can join our Facebook group, 
by searching for bonnets at dawn. True story. I bet you were waiting for me to ask you a question about the internet, but I didn't. I was. The relief was. (laughs) It's really lifted my spirits. (laughs) When did the internet start? It was invented by a British man. They did it in the 2012 Olympics. There was a bit where there's the little house and then Mm -hmm. the house isn't there anymore. And the little computer man. uh, And then there's light. Whoa. Good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Ready? One, two, three. What an explanation of anything. (laughs) There was a a house, and then the house was gone, and then the little computer man, and the light. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Sounds like a fever dream, doesn't it?